Grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus the Christ. Amen. The text for our meditation today is the gospel, which we just heard, and we'll hear it again throughout the sermon. How important is family? Well, that question will be answered in many different ways, depending on how dysfunctional the family is that they came from. And we have to remember, in this sinful world, all families are dysfunctional to a lesser or greater extent. Some families are so dysfunctional that person, I don't even want to go there. I don't want to be with them. I feel worse after I've seen them. And there are some families which do terrible things to each other, even murder each other. But we go to the very first family in the Bible. And Cain murders his brother Abel. So families don't always, aren't always a good thing. But then there are families where things are functioning well enough that they become, a family becomes a place of refuge, a place to find acceptance, a place to find love and help and refuge in this world. I have to say that I'm blessed with family, something like that. Just this past weekend, our four children, the three that have spouses, our six grandchildren, were all together at our house in Raleigh, and it was a wonderful time. We were there, we supported each other, we helped each other. Now, our family is not 100% functional. We do have our disagreements on, you know, what should be cleaned or not cleaned. Uh, how much planning should go into something? Uh, should we just, on the spur of the moment, do something? Or should we make sure everything is planned out step by step before we proceed? Well, those are minor things in the whole picture. And that it was a, a wonderful time when we could have a support of each other. And there are many families like this in the world. Uh, in our gospel today... We are introduced to Jesus' family, well, actually two of his families. We're going to concentrate on the one at the end of the text uh, where he says, those are in my family who do God's will. So we want to think of that as a focus uh, to think about. You know, it, this text doesn't tell us as much about what it means to be in Jesus' family, but it does tell us more about who is in Jesus' family or God's family. So that's what we want to consider and look at and try to answer the question, who is in God's family? Now, of the people that we meet in this text, and there are several groups, one group is the experts in the law would come down from Jerusalem. And we read about them, <clears throat> verse 22. The experts in the law who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul, and he drives out demons by the ruler of demons. Experts in the law. The law was referring to God's word, the part they had at that time, which we call the Old Testament, written over a period of approximately a thousand years, from the time of Moses, 1400 B.C., time of Malachi, about 400 B.C. Uh, it's... That's all God's word. And these, uh, the first, see, the first five books of Moses are called the Torah, which simply means law or instruction. And so the whole thing sometimes was called simply the law. These men, these experts in the law, it was their job 
to study God's word and to teach it to others. Now, if there are any people you would think should be close to God and part of God's family, you would expect it would be these experts in the law. Unfortunately, they did not understand God's word. They missed the real point of God's word uh, as it was revealed to them. You see, in that word, as we already saw in that first reading, God had promised a Savior, a Messiah, to save his people from the devil and from sin. Um, And the law that was given in God's word, his main function was to help people to see, you are a sinner and you need this Savior that I'm going to send you. These experts in the law, for the most part, missed this point. They thought God's law was given to them so they could figure out a way to earn God's favor and to become part of his family in that way. And so when Jesus came, they didn't want a Savior. And they were rather looking for a Messiah that was a political Messiah, one who would reestablish Israel as a premier nation as it was under great King David. This Jesus had no political aspirations, and he was trying to show them that they were sinners. They didn't want to have anything to do with that. Uh, So they rejected him, despite the fact that Jesus provided ample evidence, credibility to his message. He performed miracles, including exorcising demons, which he had done just recently at this time. And it was so clear that these experts in the law who came from Jerusalem couldn't say it was untrue. They couldn't deny that it was true. Well, he was doing it, but... So they had to come up with, what is our explanation if we don't want to accept him? Say, oh, he's casting out demons in the name of the prince of demons. Wow, that's preposterous, but that's what they had to come up with. Uh, And Jesus refutes their argument clearly when he we read. He says, Jesus called them together and spoke to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is finished. On the other hand, no one can enter a strong man's house to steal his possessions unless he ties up the strong man first, then he can plunder the house. So it was preposterous for them to propose this, but this is what happens when people reject Jesus. His clear message, his clear call to repentance and faith, his demonstration of his power, it's all clear, but they reject it. In fact, these men were so, uh, they were close to Jesus' committing the sin against the Holy Spirit. He goes on to say, Amen, I tell you, everyone, everything will be forgiven people, their sins and whatever blasphemies they may speak. But whoever blasphemes the Holy Spirit will never have forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. And Jesus said this because he was, uh, they were saying he has an unclean spirit. These men had been seen a clear evidence 
of Jesus' authority and power as the Son of God. They had heard his clear call to repentance, and still they rejected it. And when people do that, when it's clear and they know what they're doing, and they still reject it, that's blaspheming the Holy Spirit, who wants to work in their heart to change their heart, but they reject it. And such people will never find forgiveness. They will never want forgiveness. They will never repent. It's a dangerous thing to play with. Uh, but these people were close to it. Jesus was still trying to call them to repentance, so perhaps they, had, at least some of them had not crossed that line. Uh, and, but as long as these men do not repent and turn to Jesus, they are outside of God's family, outside of Jesus' family. Now we turn to another group, which you might think would be close to Jesus, the members of his earthly family. The ones that the text calls his own people, or his mother and his brothers. Now, who are these brothers? That's been long debated by theologians. Uh, the first thing that comes to mind is they would be half-brothers of Jesus, children of Mary and Joseph, uh, that's possible. Or they could be slightly more distant, like cousins, which the Greek word would allow to be uh, that, uh, taken that way. See, the, one of the problems is, is that there are those that say that you know, Mary never had intercourse. Uh, she was an eternal virgin and therefore never had more children. The Bible does not indicate that at all. We, we simply can't answer this question. You know, one of the things that people point to, when Jesus was hanging on the cross, he didn't hand his mother Mary over to uh, one of his half-brothers, but to his, one of his disciples. Uh, they may have not been around. Maybe there were none. We just don't know the answer to that. What we do see here is these members of Jesus' earthly family who would expect to be close to Jesus, knew him from when he was probably a little kid, at least. Uh, what about them? They thought Jesus was crazy. Out of his mind is the way it's translated here. Not able to take care of himself, requiring an intervention, as he's not able to take care of himself. We read in the first verses of our text, and they went into a house, a crowd gathered again, so they were not even able to eat a meal. And when his own people heard this, they went out to take control of him, because they were saying, he is out of his mind. Now, yes, he was temporarily unable to eat. But, you see, he had compassion on these people that were gathering. He wanted to teach them. He was willing to deprive himself for a period of time to, to do this, even as he did you know, with the woman at the well uh, in Samaria, where when his disciples came back with food and he had been talking to this woman, he said, just a minute, I, I have some other things that have to be taken care of first before I eat. And that was the situation here. He was in control of the situation. Um, but these people, who are supposedly close to Jesus, were not interested in his teachings. Seemingly not even impressed by his ability to exercise demons, 
And it's hardest to admit when it's your brother who does, does something like this. They were, at best, interested only in his physical well-being. They were not willing to analyze the situation, see that Jesus really was in control, uh, nor were they able to understand the importance of his work. Uh, they were putting themselves outside of Jesus' family because they didn't want to listen to what he was teaching. They didn't want to listen to spiritual matters. They didn't want to look at themselves to see that they were sinners in need of Jesus as a Savior. We do read, John tells us this, that uh, even his own brothers did not believe in him. So at this time, his brothers did not believe in him. So they were outside of Jesus' family too. The question is about Jesus' mother. When we don't believe the message from the very beginning, probably was just being carried along by the uh, by her children, and as a mother, over-concerned for her son. Uh, we have to realize she was not sinless, as, as some make out her to be, but probably, I believe, her just carried along in weakness. But the thing we see in both these groups, the experts in the law and Jesus' earthly family, they were concerned about physical things, not about spiritual things. Experts in the law look for a political messiah. The members of Jesus' earthly family were concerned about Jesus' physical situation. Neither group was ready to look at their spiritual situation, look at their own condition. And that, of course, is far more important than even our physical condition. And this is the case of many people in this world today. It is not easy to get people to look at their spiritual condition, to get them to see themselves as, as sinners, incapable of pleasing God and, or, or earning his favor. It is, in fact, gut-wrenching to admit that you are a failure, that you can't get God's fa fa uh, favor. You are lost. You are facing eternal punishment. To realize that is, is terrible. So what do people do rather than face that? They invent fanciful things like the experts in the law did to, to evade that. Uh, <clears throat> they, they turn to various methods. Calling Jesus and his followers uh, as, as being out of their minds, crazy, or maybe somewhat less severe fanatics, overzealous. Oh, you Christians are just too fanatic. You're overzealous as a way to, okay, I don't have to listen to you because you're just going too far. People do that. It's not rational, but that's what they do. Uh, or accusing Christian beliefs of being out of touch with reality, um, being unloving or narrow-minded, or perhaps even satanic, as the experts in the law did. It's another way of evading looking at your spiritual condition. Ah, this is not pertinent for today. This is, not, this is out of touch. One more method people use is simply to deny that God exists. And when you do that, then you deny that there is a judge you have to face uh, after this life. And so that lifts a burden. If you can convince yourself of that, 
Of course, it doesn't really work in the end. These are all diversionary tactics people use to avoid looking at their spiritual condition. Uh, We just have to realize that people do this, even when Jesus was trying to convince, like the Pharisees, of this. That should not stop us, as it didn't stop Jesus, from trying. Just realize this kind of reaction is out there. We also have to realize we each have a sinful nature that feels this way too, that doesn't really want to listen to everything Jesus has to say, um, maybe calling, oh, yeah, that's old-fashioned, that can't possibly be true uh, in, in today's world, uh, trying to deflect these things. That's what our sinful nature wants to do. But when we see these things and see that we are sin, we confess our sins and we seek his forgiveness um, because we are in Jesus' family. Because now we look at that final group in our text. At the end of the text, we read, he re- uh, Jesus replied, Who are my mother and my brothers? He looked at those around him in a circle and said, Look, my mother, my brothers, whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. Not all the people there reacted as the experts in the law or Jesus' earthly family reacted. These people gathered around Jesus had come to hear him teach. They had found that his teachings would give them hope and comfort. Now, what was he teaching? We find this section in Mark 3, toward the beginning of his gospel. It probably happened a little later than that in the chronology, but the gospel writers didn't follow a strict chronology. They were following a train of thought to show Jesus as the Messiah. In this particular case, we can look back at the teachings that Jesus was, the things Jesus was teaching up to this point in Mark's gospel to see what um, these people would know. They would have almost certainly heard that Jesus had been baptized by John the Baptist, who was baptizing for the forgiveness of sins. Uh, they Now, Jesus himself didn't baptize, but his teaching, his preaching, was the same as that of John the Baptist. In the first chapter, Mark already says uh, this, that he uh, preached the message, repent and believe the gospel. That was Jesus' message. They had heard about him healing many people and exercising demons, demonstrating that he did have power. Power is the Son of God. Uh, in one case, when a paralyzed man was brought to him, and this happened before this event, uh, before Jesus healed that paralyzed man, he said, your sins are forgiven. The more important thing for this man. Probably he had been feeling guilty or something up to that point. And then he went on to forgive him, or to heal him, in part to demonstrate that he had power to forgive sins. He had had dinner at the house of Levi, the disciple that had been called from being a tax collector. And Levi was with his friends, other tax collectors and outcasts of society. And uh, when the Pharisees complained about Jesus eating with these people, he points out that his his mission is to call sinners 
to heal them, that is, to forgive them. So these people had come for that forgiveness, for that message that their sins were forgiven, that they had hope and could be received by God. Uh, now Jesus also taught things like, you know, that God's law is really designed to help us see that we are sinners in need of him as a savior. The core of Jesus' message then is was is to repent and believe and then to accept that forgiveness that he has given for our sins. Even in this text, there's a clear announcement of that. In that scary passage about the unforgivable sin, he begins it by saying, everything will be forgiven people. Their sins and whatever blasphemies they speak. What comfort is in those words, isn't it? These people were gathering because they recognized they were sinners and they wanted this forgiveness for everything they had done wrong. And this is God's will. That people turn in repentance and faith to Jesus. God wants all people to be saved. That's his will. Oh. And so these people would have comfort and hope. They would be truly accepted and uh, <clears throat> uh, loved in God's family. They were made God's family by receiving this forgiveness. Now, which group are you a part of? We do have a sinful nature, each one of us, that, want, that doesn't want to recognize our sins, wants to ignore, at least in part, what Jesus tells us, get angry sometimes when people want to point out our sins. That's a sinful nature. But by grace, God has given us uh, <clears throat> the ability to overcome that sinful nature, to confess that we are indeed sinners to rejoice that Jesus came to give us forgiveness. And we are happy then when Jesus calls us his mother and brothers and sisters. And that means we are happy to gather around Jesus, around his word, hear that word which wants to give us that comfort and hope, and sometimes wants to point out our sins too. We thirst for that word, it reassures us um, that we have been adopted by God into his family, and we look forward to learning more about that. <clears throat> it is for that reason you are now eagerly anticipating the arrival of your new pastor. Now, you have been able to be served in this interim time by Pastor Satorius and myself, <clears throat> and I'll have to say this has been a privilege and I'm not quite done yet, to be able to do this. But it's not the same as having a full-time pastor. One whose work, his full-time work, is to teach you, to proclaim to you God's Word, to help you study God's Word, to give you advice from God's Word, to serve you in many ways. And this is what uh, the future pastor Layman will do for you, and you're looking forward to this. Now, show him 
that you are members of God's family by eagerly gathering to hear him preach that word, to teach that word, to explain that word, uh, maybe even to counsel with that word. That's you know, part of you know, receiving him. Yes, for a time now we have had the privilege of gathering uh, virtually through uh, the miracles of modern science in this pandemic time, but uh, <clears throat> still doesn't really take the place of physically gathering. And we look forward to doing that more and more as this pandemic gets under control and we uh, <clears throat> can see it to gather, because this is what God wants us to do. As he, people were gathered around Jesus in a circle to gather and hear God's word preached, by your new pastor. Family is important. A loving family uh, is a great blessing in this life and can be a blessing for guiding us in our spiritual life also. But being members of Jesus' family, that's the most important of all, eternally important. Praise God that you are members of his family. Amen. Let us rise. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.